Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is Eric Goulder, MD, who is founder of the Heart Attack Stroke Prevention Center of Central Ohio, HASPC. We will discuss the link between oral and cardiac health. Eric Goulder worked for 20 years at Riverside Methodist Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. He then worked for 10 years as a cardiologist affiliated with Marietta Memorial Hospital until he opened the HASPC of Central Ohio. He is an accredited provider of the Bale Dunin Method. Eric, welcome. Thank you, Elena. Let's go back to real basics. What do, what are we talking about when we're talking about oral health? That sounds like it's something we all understand, going to the dentist for a checkup once a year, twice a year, three times a year, depending on your health condition, your dental health condition. But is there a specific definition of oral health? What does that mean? Well, I don't know that there's a, a specific definition, but I think that uh, what people have to be aware of is that I, I, in our in the United States, 80 to 85 percent of the adult population has some degree of periodontal disease, and periodontal disease is inflammation and infection of the gums. Uh, it can be relatively mild; it can be pretty serious, and a lot of times it's fairly um, asymptomatic, meaning that uh, people don't have a lot of trouble with pain. Um, uh, they don't have trouble bleeding, uh, but they've got bad bacteria in their mouth that are uh, that can that are damaging the gums. And as the gums, as this periodontal disease progresses, um, there's bone loss around the around the teeth, uh, and and the teeth can become loose, and people can lose teeth from periodontal disease. Uh, so, uh, it, it's a it's a super common problem uh, in our country. Uh, and, uh, like I said, people can be asymptomatic. They may have some trouble with it. They may have, uh, some, uh, pain when they're chewing. They may have tenderness of their gums. They may see some, uh, some pink in the sink when they, uh, brush their teeth. Uh, and all of those are signs that there's something going on. Uh, so also, uh, today during our, this COVID, uh, pandemic we had going on, we're all wearing masks and maybe we're a little bit more aware of how our breath smells. And if we have some bad breath, it's not just, and it's not just from having had, uh, you know, lunch with some, uh, garlic in it or something like that, uh, that, uh, that could be a sign that you have periodontal disease. Where does this inflammation come from? So it's a it's a bacteria. So periodontal disease is a bacterial infection, um, and where it gets set up is in the uh, the pockets between that that, uh, that or between the gum and the tooth. And as those bacteria get in there, and they're predominantly anaerobic bacteria, which means that these are bacteria that don't like oxygen. They like to live where there's no oxygen. And they get in there and they grab, they inflame the gums because there's an infection in there and your body's trying to fight it off and that's inflammation. Uh, and, uh, gradually these pockets can get deeper and deeper so, uh, that these bacteria, they set up colonies in there, they set up their own microbiome in there. Uh, and, uh, so you may have a whole variety of bacteria down in these pockets and they can be actually different from one area of your mouth to another. Uh, but these bacteria can sort of set up housekeeping down there and, uh, then, uh, you know, there's the inflammation that comes on and the, the bleeding, uh, and that sort of thing. That, that sounds a little, uh, intimidating bacteria that are setting up their own microbiome in your mouth? Well, you know, we have over 700 different bacteria that can live in our mouths. And we, um, in particular, uh, at the Heart Attack and Stroke Prevention Center, we are very concerned about 11 of them, and in particular, five of them that we consider to be high-risk we call them high-risk pathogens. These are bad, bad, five bad bacteria that uh, we know is proven can help drive the arterial disease process. Uh, so we don't like these guys in the mouth. And the way we find out if you've got them or not is by a simple um, 
it's a, it's a saliva DNA test. So uh, you get like a little bit of saline in your mouth. You switch it around for 30 seconds. You spit it back in the tube. We send it off to the laboratory. The laboratory tells us what bacteria, what of these, which of these 11 bacteria and how much of them you have in your mouth. And then we know, we, then we, then we know the dentist knows, uh, what the targets are and, uh, how to go about treating that. Wow. So 700 bacteria have to date been identified as being able to live in our mouth so that it's a hospitable environment for at least 700 bacteria. Right. And to our knowledge, 1100 of them can be harmful. And five of them can be especially harmful. Did right. I understand correctly? That's right. Eleven of them are, are bad. Some of them are not as bad as others, but the five that we worry about, uh, the five high-risk bacteria, are uh, a, a particular problem, uh, for, particularly for the arterial system. And can also play a role in one of them, uh, Porphyrmonas gingivalis, uh, called PG, uh, can uh, play a role in development, uh, is being shown that it can play a role in development of Alzheimer's disease now. Which, uh, would you tell us which of, which are the five that are especially troubling to you? Well, I'm a cardiologist and not a dentist, so uh, they're abbreviated AA, um, uh, PG, FN, FN stands for uh, Fusobacterium nucleatum, um, TD and TF. And um, so these are, these are, you know, there's a whole, they're, they're all anaerobes. They all love to live without oxygen. And uh, they can, by various methods, uh, can affect the cardiovascular system. For instance, um, AA, and it's got a name that, it's, got, it's real name is about a half a, half a line on a, on a page long. It's a, it's a huge long name, and I would bungle it if I said it. But AA actually um, can kill off, you know, our, our arteries have a one-cell thick lining layer, which separates the blood flow from the rest of the arterial wall. That's called the endothelium. And this AA bacteria can actually kill endothelial cells, making big holes in the wall of the artery, and can prevent the endothelium from repairing that hole. So normally, if there's damage to the endothelium, your heart, your body knows how to fix that. This AA prevents that from happening. So you've got this big hole in the in the wall of the artery, so that things like cholesterol and other bacteria can actually get into the wall of the of the artery, the, into the wall of the of the, the artery where the uh, where the bad stuff happens. The intima, that's the first layer of the arterial wall where the cholesterol builds up. Uh, PG um, can actually um, uh, Porphyrmonas gingivalis uh, is another bad actor because it can uh, get into the lining of the blood vessel and make the cholesterol stick there. Normally, 1,000 to 10,000 times more cholesterol flows through all three layers of the arterial wall and out of the arterial wall than ever sticks. This PG makes it actually stick there. And then the other really bad actor is that Fusobacterium nucleatum. And that, uh, that bacteria actually opens up their, oh, yeah. your endothelial cells are glued tightly together. So they make a, a impenetrable, um, barrier. Uh, and this, this FN actually breaks those tight tight junctions up so that uh, the endothelium opens up and things get bad things again can get into the arterial wall. It's my understanding that we have bacteria that are essential to our bodies, many, many millions and millions of bacteria, some of which we depend on in order to stay healthy, some of which are inherently beneficial to us, some of which are neutral, some of which are harmful, and some of which vary depending on the circumstances. Is that right? That's correct. I mean, you know, we all, we've all heard about the gut biome now, and that's why we take, a lot of people take um, uh, gut probiotics to, uh, and things like, um, like uh, yogurt and uh, kimchi and sauerkraut, all those sort of fermented type foods. Um, they they all have uh, some species of bacteria in them, particularly lactobacillus and bifidobacteria, that are beneficial for us. That help us maintain a good um, uh, a good uh, GI uh, environment. 
Um, and actually, and I don't know how far I want to go into that. The, uh, the same thing happens in the mouth. So we all have a, a, um, a healthy, can have a healthy biome in the mouth. Uh, but the problem is that when we, uh, get some of these bad bacteria in there, uh, and it can be a communicable disease. I mean, you know, we see, we see family members, uh, husbands and wives that have almost identical, um, uh, DNA tests of their, of their oral bacteria. Uh, so that we can swap these bacteria back and forth, unfortunately. Um, and so these, but we know that we can help improve that, um, oral uh, biome, uh, by things such as a oral probiotic. Uh, so there's something that, that we use in the, uh, and I'm saying we, but I mean, so at the Heart Attack and Stroke, let me explain this really quickly. At the Heart Attack and Stroke Prevention Center here, um, I work with a dentist who happens to be my wife. Um, and uh, so she is all in tune with this whole bail Deneen approach, and we can talk about that more in a minute. But um, she's the one who takes care of all the dental issues. She and her her team take care of all the dental issues. Uh, and one of the things they use is this oral probiotic called Probiora Plus. And this is a really unusual um, uh, probiotic because it has three different species uh, that are variations of bacteria that live in our mouth. So one of the one of the bacteria that lives in our mouth that causes cavities uh, is a, um, a bacteria called Streptomyces, and it likes to stick to the teeth, and it produces lactic acid that then uh, you know chews holes in our enamel. Uh, so one of the bacteria in this probiotic is uh, a variation of this bacteria, this strep mutans. It's called actually strep ratus. And it sticks to the teeth, but it does not produce lactic acid. So it doesn't cause any problems. So right after you get your teeth cleaned, if you start using these oral probiotics, then you can sort of crowd out the, the bad stuff so that the good bacteria grow in your mouth. The other two bacteria that are in, that are in this oral probiotic, this Probiora Plus, are, um, stick more to the, to the gums and they produce hydrogen peroxide and hydrogen peroxide then, uh, produces oxygen and that kills off those bacteria down deep, down in the pockets. Uh, so those three bacteria are really helpful to, especially right after you've had your teeth cleaned, uh, to start using the oral probiotic once or twice a day. It's just a little mint you put in your mouth. It dissolves over a few minutes. Um, and then, uh, you've got good bacteria in your mouth that help uh, crowd out the bad guys. There doesn't seem to be universal agreement from what I could find online, certainly from peer-reviewed and reputable organizations on this topic. So, for example, I found an article from Harvard from Robert Schmerling, MD, who's an associate professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School and clinical chief of rheumatology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. And his resume goes on. And he says that there may be an association, but that a causal relationship has not been established. And like this article, I found others that say there is no definitive evidence that links cardiac health and cardi I'm sorry, oral health and cardiac health. Where what, what is the thinking in terms of this link beyond the fact that people who have poor oral health in some instances may also have other conditions such as poor cardiac health or Alzheimer's, et cetera? So the American Heart Association has a statement that says that there's a definite relationship between oral health and the health of your arteries, uh, but they don't go so far as to say that it's causative. On the other hand, uh, there's a, a wealth of evidence out there uh, that says there, that, that agrees that there's a connection. Um, for instance, uh, let me tell you about one uh, study that was done uh, looking at um, people when they come in with a heart attack. And, you know, when you come in with a heart attack, the first thing that happens is you get whisked off to the cath lab and they try and open up the artery. They take pictures and see where the blockage is and, to, and try and, oh, and open up that artery with a stent. Uh, right before they 
open up the artery with a stent, they suck as much of the blood clot out of the artery as they can, because it's the blood clot that's causing the heart attack. It's not the cholesterol buildup. The cholesterol buildup is there and usually is fairly mild before the heart attack occurs, and then uh, it either cracks or erodes the, the covering over the cholesterol buildup, the plaque. Um, uh, cracks, erodes, and then your body tries to fix that with a blood clot. So when they go in there to fix the artery, they suck the blood clot out before they before they uh, put the stent in. And when they've looked at that blood clot um, and did and do what's called polymerase chain reaction testing, which is the testing the the, the DNA testing on that clot, they found that 78% of the time there are uh, strep viridens bacteria in the clot. Strep viridens is the bacteria that grows in the root canal lesions. 35% of the time, they found the oral, oral pathogens in there, like the AA, the PG, the FN in there uh, that we talked about. And when they looked at the circulating blood at the same time, there were almost no bacteria in the blood. So the question is, how do those bacteria get the clot? Well, obviously they were in the plaque that ruptured before the clot was formed. So that, that's clear-cut evidence for me that, there, that there's a that these bacteria are in the walls of the arteries. And we have other tests looking at the same type of thing. Uh, so um, so that's, that's one piece of evidence. The other thing, if, if you want to look at, or any of your listeners want to look at the, uh, the landmark article, article written by Drs. Bale and Deneen, uh, that was published in um, Postgraduate Medicine, November 2016. They go through the whole uh, the whole uh, a process of how these bacteria get into the arteries, how these different bacteria affect the wall of the artery, and how they are actual drivers of arterial disease. Uh, so. Uh, those of us that that follow a Baildenin approach, which is basically a uh, preventive approach to arterial disease, okay, uh, we we all feel strongly that the the uh, oral connection is huge. So this Baildenin approach is is really fairly simple. It says number one, look and see if your patients if if your patients have arterial disease, and then we can talk about how we look for that in a minute. Number two, if they have disease, is there inflammation going on? Because it's inflammation. We know it's inflammation that drives this whole process. So uh, Dr. Paul Ridker, who um, is at Harvard, uh, is the uh, cardiologist who's been doing all the, a lot of the work on inflammation for the past 25 years. He's the one who came up with that high-sensitivity CRP test, that HSCRP test that a lot of physicians look at now. Um, but he's also done more research besides that. And uh, he has proven that it's, uh, that it's clearly inflammation that drives this whole process. So, number one, look and see if you have disease. Number two, look if you have inflammation. And then, if you have inflammation, why do you have the inflammation? And we know that there are at least uh, 15 or 18 systemic problems that can cause inflammation that helps drive this whole process. Things like like periodontal disease, endodontic root canal disease, low vitamin D, obstructive sleep apnea, um, diabetes, insulin resistance. Um, you know, obviously the, the, the ones that we all are, are aware of are things like high blood pressure and high cholesterol. Those are inflammatory. Um, um, I'm not sure if I mentioned obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, genetics can play a big role in this. Uh, and certainly lifestyle. So, uh, and psychosocial stress plays a huge role in, in, uh, inflammation because it churns up all sorts of uh, stress hormones, cortisol and, uh, epinephrine and all sorts of things like that that, that are inflammatory for us. Uh, so, uh, we know that uh, those of, of, those of us who practice a Baildenin approach are, um, uh, strong believers in the oral systemic connection because we've seen it so often. Even if we take into account, for example, this article that I was talking about that says they've looked at a million people in a study in which 65,000 people had cardiovascular events, the only conclusion they could draw was that after accounting for age, there was a moderate correlationship between tooth loss and coronary heart disease, and smoking, if you took that into account, that mm -hmm. there could be a connection, once again, between tooth loss 
as opposed to oral health. But so you've said there is evidence that you have found that there is a relationship, even if it's not causal, but even if it's just an association. So people who present one present the other, and you can't link them definitively as Mm -hmm. to what the cause is. Are there any studies that follow these diagnostic techniques that you've been describing to us and the treatment methodologies? Is there anything you can tell us about that? Well, certainly we know that if we look at one one of the um, inflammatory markers that we look at, uh, it's a blood test, to say if there's inflammation going on in the wall of the artery, uh, and that test is called the it's called the PLAC2 test or LPPLP capital L little P hyphen PLA2 uh, test, um, and that's lipoprotein phospholipase A2. Uh, it's a mouthful, um, but that test that test when it's elevated says there is active atherosclerosis going on. It's only ele- it's elevated because it drives the atherosclerotic process, the arterial disease process in the wall of the artery, in the intima, that first lining, that first layer of the lining of the artery. Um, and we know that if we look at that test and it's elevated, and you go to and you've got periodontal disease, and you go see your dentist and you get your periodontal disease treated, that can that will lower that test by thirty percent. That's been documented uh, in um, uh, in the literature. So uh, we know that treating these, inf- what we're saying are inflammatory causes, decreases the inflammation. If we decrease the inflammation, then the arterial disease process settles down. Um, and certainly, uh, there are a lot of studies that say that that say that uh, tooth loss is associated with um, arterial disease, and it's, it's tooth loss. And what's the most common cause of tooth loss is periodontal disease, because you get that bone that bone loss that holds your tooth in place, and they get loose and they come out. How do these bacteria make their living, as it were? How do they make their home in our mouths? Where do they come from? Is it related to our diet? Is it, you talked earlier about psychosocial stress. So our, our hormones and our chemical systems driving an environment in our mouth that's hospitable to them. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the origin of these 11 slash 5 really troublesome bacteria. So, yeah, so the, you know, the, the mouth is not the cleanest place. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that gets into our, our mouth. And um, these bacteria, we can get them from from uh, family members. Um, there's a, uh, there's, there's, um, we get some of that from, uh, you know, just our, our mothers when we're born. Uh, we get, we get, we have as children, we have this, we have very similar oral flora to uh, our mother's oral flora. Um, so uh, that's part of how we get it. Um, these guys are just, you know, they're just out there. And uh, some of us have different, you know, we all have a different genetic makeup. And some of that genetic makeup is determines how we respond to an infection uh, or to inflammation, uh, how we mount an inflammatory response to inflammation. Some of us are don't have as strong a uh, uh, ability to fight off that infection as others. And so I think that uh, that and it, it's oral care. I think that people who take good care of their mouth and are brushing their teeth two or three times a day and are flossing every day um, are are going to have uh, a better uh, oral flora than people who don't take good care of themselves. Now, there's a line there where you also have to be careful because some people are going to extremes, a little bit like with the folks that are cleaning their hands raw, literally, Mm -hmm. where they're bleeding or hurting themselves. There are people out there who are rinsing with alcohol products that are causing them harm and hurting their gums because they're brushing so hard and they're flossing so hard. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about where those lines are. 
So we're not a big fan of the alcohol-based mouthwashes because they don't get down into the pockets. Okay, those pockets can be, you know, that the normal connection between the gum and the tooth is a one or two millimeter little, we'll call it a pocket, but a one or only one or two millimeters deep. When you've got pockets that are four, five, six, eight millimeters deep, okay, with, with, with active periodontal disease, the mouthwash doesn't get down into those pockets. But what, do, but what it does do, the alcohol-based uh, mouthwashes, is they kill off a lot of the good bacteria in your mouth because they're right there, you know, they're right in, on the surface. Uh, so we're not a big fan of the alcohol-based uh, mouthwashes. Uh, certainly, if you're, if you're the, the, Type of toothbrush that we recommend is the uh, sonic type toothbrush, not the rotary type uh, electric. Um, you can brush by by hand, but the sonic toothbrushes actually uh, set up those those sound waves down deeper into those pockets and can help uh, kill off can kill some of those bacteria. So they do a better job of cleaning your mouth than hand brushing. Um, you don't have to brush hard. You just, you know, and so you're just using the toothbrush, run, running it over your teeth, and it's, it's, you know, the, the sonic toothbrushes get in there and, and uh, clean things up pretty well. Um, the other thing, I mean, if you're if you're causing if you're bleeding, your gums are bleeding when you're brushing your teeth. Um, healthy gums don't bleed, so uh, you probably got some periodontal disease going on. Is there any relationship between this oral hygiene and oral health and any oral health or oral cleanliness products that are commonly used? Well, so um, we like uh, the uh, xylitol-based uh, um, toothbrushes and uh, toothbrushes, excuse me, toothpaste. And um, they make uh, mints because it changes the pH in the mouth and helps keep you from getting uh, keeps you from getting um, uh, cavities as much. Uh, the uh, my wife uses uh, several other uh, products uh, for her patients besides the Probiora Plus. Uh, we'll do uh, we often use something called a Perio Protect tray. This is a uh, this is a custom made tray that fits over your your um, your upper and lower teeth. It's got like a little gasket around each tooth, um, and when you fill the tray with um, what they call Perio Gel, it's a 1.7 percent hydrogen peroxide gel. You put it in the tray, you put the trays in, you wear them for uh, 10 or 15 minutes uh, uh, once a day, and that actually forces the hydrogen peroxide down deep into those pockets. It can reach down, actually, they've done studies, and it can actually get down 9 millimeters into a pocket, which is huge, and the hydrogen peroxide then bubbles up and produces oxygen and kills off the bacteria. So we're we're big fans of that. We're big fans. We take a pretty much of a shotgun approach to try and get this taken care of. So the approach Biora Plus, the uh, the uh, Periprotect trays. They use uh, some products called Stella Life. Uh, they use um, uh, yeah, and so uh, and then good oral care. So home care. So you've got to be you've got to be taking care of yourself. Once you get your teeth clean, you just can't say okay, they're clean. I'm good for the next six months or three months or whatever. Uh, so you've got to be doing the, all the right stuff at home too, while brushing your teeth and, and flossing and that sort of thing. Tell us which peer-reviewed studies support the the use of these uh, four products that you've mentioned: the xylitol-based toothpaste, wow. the Probiora Plus, the Perioprotect trays, and the Stero Life. Do you have any article links or mm -hmm. any authorities, any studies that have followed patients, you know, with uh, placebos, et cetera? So you're asking a cardiologist to come up with a bunch of dental stuff. So no, uh, but I know that there's stuff out there that I can probably track down for you pretty quickly. The, um, the, if you go to the Periprotect uh, website, uh, they've got lots of studies that, that, uh, that show that the, that the, the perio gel, the hydrogen peroxide gel, gets down nine millimeters in the pocket and actually kills the bacteria off, uh, changes, changes the, can change the oral flora, um, the uh, uh, Probiora uh, Health 
uh, has has uh, research that shows that uh, that their um, three specific bacteria uh, help crowd out the bad bacteria. Actually, there is a um, a great pediatric uh, dentist. I'm blanking on his name now, but I'll come up with it in a minute, uh, who has done studies that shows that in, in kids who have a very difficult time um, with uh, with cavities, rampant cavities, uh, that using this, this uh, Probiora Plus um, oral probiotic uh, significantly, like uh, 50% decrease in cavity rate or 90% decrease rate, decreased rate of cavities in these kids who they've not been able to control in the past. Uh, so there's there's uh, the, there's good uh, literature out there on all these things, but um, but again, you're talking to a cardiologist. <laughs> We're getting there. <laughs> so I noticed that you you haven't mentioned something that we used to hear a lot about, which is fluoride. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, you're, again, I'm not sure, uh, where, I think that there's fluoride and I don't think there are a lot of toothpaste made now that don't have fluoride in them. I know there are people who are anti-fluoride, um, but I can't tell you, I mean, you can get too much, um, and it could be toxic, but I don't think the amount that's put in the water and in, in the toothpaste is enough to cause problems. Um, but I know that, um, that, uh, some, I know, I can tell you that some people are anti-fluoride and I can't tell you why. I haven't looked into that. There is a lot of controversy in preparation for today. Actually, I found a study that it was conducted in New Zealand comparing people who used fluoride with people who didn't, and there was no evidence of a benefit from the fluoride. So let's get to the cardiovascular side of things, which you have told us is your comfort zone. <laughs> What are we talking about when we talk about cardiac health? Because it's a bit of a silent condition. You may not know that you have it until you have a cardiac incident. And there's a lot of controversy around the treatment. It used to be some procedures were pretty much routine, and now there's a lot of controversy around that. And they're saying that they're really not doing any good. They're probably more harmful than beneficial. Uh, why don't you paint a picture for us, if you would? So cardiovascular disease, um, arterial disease, we're talking specifically arterial disease, as opposed to valvular heart disease or congestive heart failure or rhythm problems, that sort of thing. But I'm particularly talking about arterial disease. Um, is a it's, it's silent. We don't know that we have it until it rears its ugly head. So 50% of the time, the initial sign or symptom that somebody has arterial disease is when they have a heart attack or drop over dead. The lucky people are the ones who have some warning. They get chest discomfort, shortness of breath, fatigue, something, go see their doctor and gets figured out. But unless you go to look and see, actually look and see if you've got arterial disease, you don't know it's there because it's not causing any problem until it gets so bad that it's going to cause an event. Uh, so that's one of the differences with uh, a bail-denine uh, prevention approach is that we actually look to see if you have disease. The way we look to see if you have disease is with a carotid ultrasound scan. And it's not the typical scan that you get done at the hospital or the scan that you get done by one of those mobile scanning services. This is called a, a, it's called a carotid intima media thickness scan. It's a test that's looking at, instead of looking at the hospital, the hospital test, the typical test, Doppler test is called a Doppler, carotid Doppler study, and that's looking at the flow through the artery. The uh, carotid intima media thickness test is actually looking at the wall of the artery to see, is it thicker than it should be? And we know how thick that wall should be for everybody from age 5 to age 80. And so if it's thicker than it should be, that says there's inflammation and cholesterol building up in the lining. And is there plaque there? Because plaque is very silent. You don't know that there's plaque in your arteries until something happens to it. So one minute, the flow through, you can have a mild blockage, a 30, 40, 50% blockage in arteries, and the flow through that artery with that level of blockage is normal. So one minute, the flow is normal. The next minute, that plaque is cracked, and your body makes a blood clot, and, the ne and then the flow is not normal. It's either totally way reduced or totally closed off by the blood clot. So 
unless you go looking, you don't know that's going on. And so that's one of the things we do differently. We look to see if our patients have our evidence of arterial disease. And we know if we find it in the carotids, it's probably elsewhere because it's a diffuse process. Do you have any statistics that you can share with us in terms of cardiac disease by geographic location, age, ethnicity, anything like that? Well, certainly, the um, if, if you look at the, the classic uh, risk score for cardiovascular disease, it's, it's a very age-dependent risk score. So obviously, when you're when you're 20 years old, your risk of having a heart attack or stroke is not very much. When you're 50 years old, it's higher. When you're 75 years old, it's way higher. So it tends to be worse with age. But obviously, the four uh, the four major risk factors that we all know are are cigarette smoking, high cholesterol, um, blood pressure, and uh, diabetes. Uh, but um, yeah, but we know that. Um, these risk scores that we come up with are not that good. I mean, they're, they will tell us, if, if you look at a, a group of a, a thousand, so let's take, for instance, the Framingham Risk Study, which was started in 1948. And that's the study where they actually coined the term risk factor. Um, and they, it, was, it was a study that was done in Framingham, Massachusetts, a little town of 5,200 people or so in central Massachusetts. A bunch of doctors from Boston went over there and did a history, physical, blood work, EKG on everybody in town and followed them along to see what would happen. This study is still going on today. It's in its third generation. The point being that this is where they found out that there's high blood pressure and diabetes, et cetera, that are causing heart attacks and strokes. And they came up with their risk score based on that. Uh, so the Framingham risk score says... What's your age? What's your good cholesterol? What's your total cholesterol? What's the top number, the systolic number of your blood pressure? And do you smoke or not? And they come up with a risk score. So, for instance, if you're a 50-year-old gentleman who does not smoke, who has a blood pressure of 120 over 80, who has a uh, cholesterol of 150 and a good cholesterol of 60, um, and it's not diabetic, your risk for having a heart attack or stroke over the next 10 years is 4.5%. So that means that if I took a hundred people that were identical with those risk factors and put them in a room and came back 10 years later, I can tell you that four or five of those people would have had a heart attack or a stroke, but I can't tell you which four or five. Okay. So for, for us, for a personalized uh, precision approach to prevention, if we go and if we, we do that, we calculate that risk score. But the next thing we do is we take a, we go look and see if you've got disease. So if I do a carotid scan on my patient and see that they have plaque in their carotid artery, now I know that their risk for having that heart attack or stroke is not 45 or 5%, but it's actually 40%. So clearly looking for disease is a way better um, approach than coming up with a risk score. And actually, the American College of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, in their most recent guidelines have suggested that if your risk score is higher, 7.5% or more, we should be looking somehow. And the way we look in this country is two different ways. We can do the carotid scan that we just talked about, or we can do uh, something that's much more common, which is the coronary artery calcium score. The coronary artery calcium score is like a CT scan of the chest. It involves a little bit of radiation, so 10 to 20 chest x-rays worth of radiation, not a huge amount, certainly not something you want to go through every year, but it's not a huge amount of x-ray, and it detects if you've got calcification in the coronary arteries, and the only way you've got calcification in your coronary arteries is if you have arterial disease, uh, so if you've, the score goes from zero to hundreds to thousands, so if your score is zero, you're good, you don't have evidence of calcification in the coronary arteries, and we assume, and that says your near-term risk of having problems is very low. Not zero, but very low. Um, if we see some small amount of calcification, like maybe a score of 50, uh, your near-term risk is still pretty low. If your score is higher, is like two, 300, then you've got a significant risk of, of having events over the next 10 years. Uh, the problem with the, with the, uh, the uh, coronary calcium score is, again, it only detects those more mature calcified blockages. It does not detect the soft inflamed blockages that are the ones that are much more likely to rupture and cause problems. What about factors such as geographic location, gender, 
diet, ethnicity, culture. Sure. So, I mean, the diet's huge. Uh, so, obviously, people who eat a, a high-fat diet, particularly high-animal-fat diet, have a uh, much higher incidence of arterial disease and events than people who are vegetarians. And, you know, Dr. Esselstein up at Cleveland Clinic is a huge proponent of a vegan diet um, and actually has um, got – Great studies to show that you can regress coronary disease by following his diet. Um, uh, uh, geographic location, uh, well, if we look just in our country, um, the United States, we have a, um, you know, the, if you can go to the cdc.gov site and look at what the map looks like, but there's, um, the whole Appalachian area all the way from uh, southern New York all the way down into the uh, down into uh, Mississippi, Alabama, that area is very high degree of arterial disease. Uh, Ohio is right in the middle of that belt, uh, Kentucky, West Virginia. Um, there's less arterial disease out west. Um, there's, you know, people, I think people in, in like, you know, in Colorado live a healthier lifestyle than those of us who are living in the in the Midwest. That's not everybody, but in, in general, I think that's the case. There's less arterial disease in, in California. Uh, and then worldwide, we are one of the leaders uh, in arterial disease. Um, there's a lot less of it in Japan, but I've got to tell you that since Japan is, has become more westernized uh, following uh, the Second World War, um, you know, there's a lot more smoking. Their diet is a lot, you know, we've, we've, we've really helped out the world with our, by exporting our fast food restaurants everywhere. Um, so that now there's more, a lot more heart disease in Japan than there used to be. It used to be very uncommon and now it's, it's a lot more common. Um, up in Scandinavia, they have a lot less heart disease. Uh, they eat a lot more fish than we do. And that's important in diet. It's important to be eating, uh, uh, more fish. We know that, um, that, uh, if you eat, uh, if you eat fish uh, two or three times a week, uh, you, your your risk for arterial disease goes way down. There's a theory that there's a very high risk period as people age when they're most likely to die. I forget what the demarcation is, but I want to say that it's in the early 60s. That there's a decade or so there where your risk of dying is the highest, and then if you overcome that, then your chances of living to a ripe old age are much higher. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I think that's true, but I think, you know, the average age for a, for a heart attack in our country is 72 for women and 65 for men. Uh, so that, yeah, I tell my patients sometimes, some of my, uh, my older patients, they were coming in and they're, you know, they're in their 80s and um, maybe they've got some arterial disease now and they say, you know, I say, well, maybe we should think about fixing this. And they go, well, I don't know, I'm 80. I said, and I say to them, you know, the, you're, the people with all the good parts are, are you know, you made the, the group of people all the good parts. People who have the bad parts are already gone. And so your life expectancy, once you hit 80, is still another eight or nine or ten years. So, yeah. And so that, uh, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think that, um, uh, yeah, the, like I said, the average age for heart attacks for a man in this country is, is 65 years old. So once you get past that, I don't think you're over the risk, but certainly, um, You've, and then the people who maybe are living longer are the people who have had the good the good lifestyle habits all along. They've been more active. They've been they've been eating a, a lower fat diet and uh, exercising and not smoking and that sort of thing. What about sugar? As we're talking about these lifestyle ideas, you talked about vegans. There seems to be a lot of controversy around that concept. Uh, what about sugar? There are a lot of people now who are saying, a lot of experts and studies that seem to point to sugar as the bad actor in this play. What do you think? So sugar, for one thing, it's inflammatory. But um, you know, the CDC came out with a report a few years ago that said of the 330 or so million people in this country, 28 and a half million people have diabetes and they know it and they're being treated for it. There's another 100 million people in this country, a third of the country that is insulin resistant and doesn't know it. So what is insulin resistance? Insulin resistance is 
your body, your your pancreas, where your where your um, you got specialized cells in your pancreas that make insulin, and um, it your pancreas um, puts out insulin in response to an elevated sugar level. So the pancreas sees, oh, the sugar level's up. I'm going to pump out some insulin, and insulin's job is to drive sugar into the cells, particularly skeletal muscle cells and internal organs. Um, and when people are insulin resistant, the, the insulin is not doing the job it's supposed to do of driving the sugar into the cells as well as it should. And so your sugar, your sugar level remains high after you've eaten. And then your pancreas says, oh, look, the sugar's up. I'm going to make more insulin. And, you know, and the sugar's still up and it makes more insulin. So eventually you drive, you, you, you outdrive the ability of your pancreas to make insulin. You just wear those cells out and you become diabetic. So, um, so yeah, um, sugar is, is huge. Um, and we should all be trying to stay away from refined, uh, sugars if we can. Um, yeah. And specifically as it relates to oral health and cardiac health, because of course, sugar in your mouth, processed sugar in particular, could have a relationship with these, uh, 11 bacteria that you mentioned. Yeah, it could. And, I, and I'll tell you that people who are diabetic have a lot more trouble with periodontal disease. Um, and people who are diabetic who have periodontal disease have a lot more trouble controlling their diabetes because they've got a chronic infection going on. What about sugar and cardiac disease? Is it possible that it's sugar the culprit and not fat? Well, I can – no. But, but I can, <laughs> but I can tell you that, um, that, uh, insulin resistance is a huge driver of inflammation that is cause, that is playing a role in the development of the arterial disease. So if people are insulin resistant and don't know it, um, there have been, they've done studies looking at people coming into the hospital with a heart attack and they say, and they, and they don't have diabetes at that time, but, they know that, but they that over the next few years, a, a large portion of these people, two thirds or so, develop diabetes. And so what that means, what ta- that tells me is that they were insulin resistant before they had their heart attack. And actually, two thirds of the people who've had a, who have a heart attack have been insulin resistant for ten to fifteen years before that heart attack occurs. Insulin resistance is asymptomatic, just like the arterial disease until it rears its ugly head is asymptomatic uh, as well. Like high blood pressure. You don't know you have high blood pressure until you look for it. I'm not sure I understood the relationship. Are you saying that over that time period, it can lead to the heart attack? It can be the culprit? It is a driver of arterial disease so that so that – for that 10 to 15 years that you are insulin resistant prior to your heart attack, that is playing a role in the development of the arterial disease. What about this Latin or Latino paradox that we hear about? Do you have any thoughts on that? No. Explain it to me. Well, as I understand it, the concept is that the Latino or Hispanic population and that in itself is a complicated concept because it's a self-definition, is healthier than the experts expect them to be, that based on all of these things that we're discussing and all of the other data that they put into this cocktail to, to come up with an answer at the bottom, when they put all of their expert data together, the end result prediction doesn't match reality, that Latinos are healthier than the experts say they should be. Okay. Um, I don't know. That's something for me to look into. Um, I, I, don't have, I don't have an answer, really, but I, I, I can tell you that um, – I don't know what I can tell you. Nope. Let's go back to the – the idea of cardiac health and oral health being linked. Should we be hearing about this from our practitioners, from the dentists who 
oversee our oral care? Should they be raising these issues? Even if there is controversy and there's no universal agreement, shouldn't that be starting at the dental practice? And is that universal? Because I'm not hearing that. It's definitely not universal. I think uh, there are dentists and there are dentists, just like there are doctors and there are doctors. And I think that um, that uh, the dentists who are aware of this are much more um, holistic slash total body minded about uh, dentistry. And, you know, I, I think that, uh, for instance, my wife is very passionate about the fact that, you know, she's not she's doing so much more than just making a pretty smile because it's, you know, it, it's the, your mouth is the, is the uh, gateway to the rest of your body. And, um, you know, well, I, what we like to say is what goes on in your mouth doesn't stay in your mouth. Uh, it spreads throughout the brain. There's good information out there that uh, things like FM, that bacteria, one of those five bad bacteria is associated with uh, premature delivery, with low birth weight kids and with fetal wastage. Um, and like I said, and so that I think more and more dentists are becoming aware of this, uh, but it certainly uh, should be taught in all dental schools, just like the oral systemic connection should be taught in all medical schools. Um, I, I can tell you that when I went to medical school, I didn't get a whole lot of, uh, uh, of, of education on the mouth. It's sort of ignored by the dental schools. They say, well, they're taking care of that over the dental, in the dental schools, you know, so. Um, but yeah, there's, I think that, uh, there's a, there's a huge opportunity in this country for dentists to be much more, uh, uh, proactive in their patients' total body health. Um, I mean, when I went back in the good old days, I mean, a dentist would never check a blood pressure. And uh, my wife wouldn't uh, see a patient today without checking their blood pressure. People have high blood pressure and don't even know it. And they'll come in here and she's going to do a procedure on them. And uh, a stressful procedure, their blood pressure before they start is 180 over 100. She says, no, I'm not doing that today. we got to get this under control. And she'll call the family doctor and say, hey, let's, you know, we need to do something about this. Um, their blood pressure today was so, such and such. And, you know, they'll call the patient and the family doctor call the patient, get them in and get taken care of. But, um, but yeah, we need to, the, the dentists just need to be more proactive about that. Patients see their dentist more often than they see their family physician. They see their dentist, uh, at least two times, maybe three or four times a year, and they may see their physician for an annual physical, and that's about it. So the dentist has a lot more contact with the, with, uh, the patients than the physicians do. If this is about oral hygiene in a big way, why is access to oral hygienists so restricted, and certainly in many states, and why are they tethered to a dental office? Shouldn't the licensing authorities be making it easier and facilitating oral health, allowing practitioners to go to even people's homes if they can't easily make their way to the dental office? Wow, that's a great question, and I think that that's uh, that's a state <laughs> state controlled issue. I mean, there's the licensing boards tell you. I mean, for instance, as a physician in Ohio, I cannot have a, a hygienist working in my office. I happen to have a hygienist working in my office because I work in the same office with my wife, uh, but uh, and she's the dentist. But um, yeah, I, it's it's very similar to uh, nurse practitioners, right? There's nurse practitioners. You have to be associated with a physician, but then they can be out on their own. So, um, but you know, the question is, how much can you do as a hygienist in someone's home? I mean, you know, I suppose you can wear one of those old mirrors like people used to have on their heads, <laughs> the EMT doctors used to wear, uh, with a light behind it and uh, looking in their mouth. But I mean, it's a uh, cleaning your mouth is not just sort of little scrape, scrape, scrape type thing. I and mean, they use they use uh, specialized um, ultrasonic uh, uh, treatments that go down to get that down deep into the pockets to clean things and stuff. And so, if you're just doing sort of a halfway job, are you really doing anybody any service with that? Well, they have these mobile clinics, sort of, they're kind of like buses, what? where they have facilities. I've interviewed somebody that was doing this for 
uh, ophthalmology care, and they traveled all over the world. They had an entire airplane equipped with everything they needed, including surgery. So if it's possible to do that for ophthalmology and eye care and surgery, it certainly must be possible to do something like that in the United States for dental care. But we're having a crisis in terms of dental care right now, and we have a severe shortage of physicians nationwide. In rural areas in some places, people have no access at all. Yeah, I would totally agree with you. I think that would be that would be wonderful. I mean, and you could do the same thing in, in dentistry with the hygienists as you do with the nurse practitioners and with physicians. They're associated with, a, you know, with a certain dentist, and they go around and they take care of their, their patients and refer them back to, you know, you need to get to go see the dentist because this is more than we can take care of here or whatever. But um, I think that, I think would be awesome. Now, what do you say to the response from as you were saying earlier, the non-believers, the people who are reticent to go to the physician or go to the dentist to have their teeth cleaned. There's people out there who think that that is in and of itself harmful. Uh, And they say that these are all ways for physicians and for dentists to squeeze more money out of patients. What would you say to that? Well, you know, I'm, I'll tell you, when I see an article in, uh, um, in some of the medical news about, uh, physicians who are, um, gaming the system or get caught cheating Medicare or what that sort of thing, that is so abhorrent to me. I mean, we all go into, not all, but most of us go into dentistry and medicine because we want to help people and we want to improve the quality of our patients' lives. And I don't, I mean, I, I, for one, I mean, I've known some physicians who do some things that I say that um, that are, I think, are excessive um, as far as testing and that sort of stuff. But um, I just say I couldn't sleep at night if I was thought I was just, you know, bilking patients out of money to, you know, and not without without any without any benefit to them. So I I I, I just couldn't do that. So I. I don't know what to say about that. I, I, there are bad apples in in every walk of life. Certainly, we've been through all this this summer with uh, police, uh, with you know, and, and everywhere. There's uh, politicians, uh, everything. There's there there are there are good there. The vast majority of people I believe in this world are very good, and unfortunately, there are some people who are not. Well, we need some positive thinking like that. <laughs> Do you think that? The the fact that so many physicians and people in the medical field are so closely linked to pharmaceutical companies and medical product manufacturers and are receiving compensation or outright payment, whether it's in the form of a direct payment or whether it's freebies, et cetera. I forget what the number was that I saw the other day, something like 30% of MDs in the United States collect significant fees every year. Do you think that plays a role in the hesitation? Uh, That might play a role. I mean, I I know that um, there's rules now in medicine and they, I mean, I, when a drug rep uh, comes into the office, they can't they can't give me a pen or a, a notepad anymore. And you know, in the bad old days, they were mailing you stuff all the time and spending tons of money, wasting tons of money on pushing medications. And uh, today, most of that's gone. Now, I think when people get get money from the from the pharmaceutical companies now, it's because of speaking engagements. Um, but uh, for the most part, but as far as uh, gifts from pharmaceutical companies, that sort of stuff, that doesn't happen too much anymore that I'm aware of. What do you say to the argument that these are all for-profit entities, the hospitals, the physicians, the probiotic manufacturers, the nutraceuticals, which are all unregulated? Yeah, well, um, that's the country we live in. This is a capitalist society, and that's everybody's everybody's trying to 
make a living. I think that I think that there is certainly has is significant abuse of big pharma uh, for the, what they charge for their medications. However, having said that, they do have a lot of a lot invested in getting new medications to the market in this country. On the other hand, you know, medications are not nearly as expensive elsewhere in the world as they are here. Uh, if you talk about supplements, you know, the FDA does not uh, does not regulate supplements by law. So as long as you don't say that you're curing something, uh, you can sell pretty much whatever you want to sell, snake oil and all sorts of things. Uh, but uh, I think that... Um, yeah, is is we live in a capitalist society, and that's what and that's what we have to put up with uh, to some degree. There's also been a lot of controversy because many of the prescription medicines that are that are regulated in the United States are being manufactured overseas. Oftentimes, or most of the time, from what I understand, they are not under the supervision of inspectors the way they should be here. The inspectors rarely visit. Uh, when they visit, the factories have advance notice, so they prepare and apparently manufacture data. What can our listeners do to take care of themselves in you know, follow these suggestions that you're telling us. How can they check out, for example, products before consuming them, before embracing them? Uh, how can they find out just very basically where a product is made? Because oftentimes the companies don't disclose that very readily. Right. Um, so that that can be a um, – that's tough. Uh, the, I, I think that if you go to the um, – the uh, FDA's website, they have things that have been blocked so that, you know, I, you know, there have been several um, issues over the past couple of years with like blood pressure medications, that sort of thing that are coming from, uh, from other countries that are, that are tainted with carcinogens, that sort of thing. So I think you have to uh, be aware of that. Not, um, you can go to the FDA website for that. Uh, the far, the sub, the supplement uh, industry is, uh, to me, it seems like the Wild West. Um, you can look and see if something's got a USP label on it, uh, which says that it's been this, it meets certain specifications and, and uh, rigid requirements. Uh, but uh, for the most part, um, supplements are you don't know what's in them. I mean, they've they've done studies looking at that and say that you know that. They go from, depending upon what company is coming from, it may have just what it says it has in it, and others may have none of none of that supplemented. They may have you know, only 5% of what they say they have in it. So the, the, there are websites you can go to looking for. Um, you can Google healthy supplements and uh or or you know regulated supplements to go look there and see which are the you know which are the best recommended uh supplement companies there's there's a lot of very ethical companies out there but there's a lot of fly by night stuff too the products that you mentioned earlier when we were talking about oral health the xylitol based toothpaste the mm-hmm. probiora plus uh the trays and the stereo life uh, do you know where they're manufactured uh, Probiora Plus is a U.S. company. It's manufactured here in the United States. The uh, um, Paraprotect is out of uh, Tennessee, I believe, and uh, they are um, uh, their their gel is manufactured in the United States as well. Um, I can't tell you about the xylitol products, and I can't tell you about the um, I'm I'm guessing it's the United States, but I, but that's a guess on my part. Well, and, of course, the other factor that complicates things is that sometimes, as with the vitamins, they are, quote, unquote, made in fill in the blank. But I think I had an expert tell me recently that 95% of all vitamin C comes from China. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true, too. Um, so you don't. I mean, there are there are some that you can get that are made in this country, but uh, but for the most part, yeah, the uh, vitamin C is the is the is the big example of that. Uh, but you know, the same thing with uh, with prescription medications, like we were talking about. Like there was a uh, 
Losartan recall that was sort of rolling for the past two years from uh, coming from both India and China that was uh, it was contaminated. Um, and it was brand after brand after brand. So uh, it's it's difficult. The, the way to get around that is to get the, the brand name drug. That's But even then, I'm not sure that all those things are still made in the United States. No, they're probably not. What three recommendations would you share with us in light of all of these big picture issues that our listeners can follow? So the most important thing for your health is a healthy lifestyle. Make sure that you're getting out there and exercising some every day, and it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be running a marathon. If you just go walk for 20 or 25 minutes a day, that's awesome. You need to be watching your diet, staying away from processed foods. You need to be eating more whole foods, more uh, natural foods, fruits, vegetables, nuts, legumes, um, uh, uh, chicken, turkey, fish. Not so much red meat. Um, certainly not processed meats. Uh, and then uh, you need to be seeing your, uh, see your dentist at least twice a year and make sure that nothing's sneaking up on you in your mouth. Make sure that they're doing perio charting to make sure you don't have evidence of periodontal disease uh, and uh, see your physician at least once a year. And I've got, you know, we've got home blood pressure monitors at home. They're not expensive. You can get them for, you know, for 30 bucks. You can get one of those little blood pressure cuffs and check your blood pressure periodically in the morning when you're getting up. Make sure that you're under 120 over 80 because that's the new target. That's where we want your blood pressure to be to uh, minimize your risk for, for cardiovascular disease. Eric, thank you for joining us from Columbus, Ohio. Thank you, Elena. And to our audience, you have been listening to Eric Goulder, MD, who is founder of Heart Attack Stroke Prevention Center of Central Ohio, HASPC, who discussed the link between oral and cardiac health. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.